Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Ever catch yourself engaging in incessant mind chatter in a high-stakes situation? The kind that fills your head with self-doubt, comparisons, and anticipations of failure. You are not alone. We all do it. But what if there is a way to overcome these self-limiting beliefs? I had a chance to talk to Dr. Mitchell Green about performance anxiety, managing self-doubt and comparison thoughts among athletes or overthinkers in general. If you have been following the podcast, you know by now that by making room for uncomfortable thoughts, rather than fighting against them, you can redirect your focus towards the present moment and towards what matters. In today's episode, Mitch and I discuss different micro skills to manage mental chatter with curiosity and courage. You will hear about the pitfalls of positive thinking, how to shift your attention from hypothetical worries to the present moment, how to shift your attention from what if to what is, how to manage lapses in confidence, how to cultivate an effective mindset to perform challenging tasks, and much, much, much more. I really hope you find this episode helpful and that you listened to it from the beginning to the end. And before we jump onto the conversation with Mitch, I want to remind you of the online class, Act Beyond Perfectionist. I have poured my heart into making a helpful class to help people like you, prone to perfectionistic, high-achieving, and striving behaviors, so you can build a rich and fulfilling life. If you are a go-getter, a doer, an anxious procrastinator, and a striver, a high-achiever, you definitely want to learn acceptance and commitment skills to manage your proneness to do things right and perfectly. You can take a peek at the curriculum, format, bonuses, and all the skills you will learn in Act Beyond Perfectionist on the website www.courses.thisisdrz.com or you can go to my website www.thisisdrz.com and send me a message there. I wish you a lovely day and let's jump onto the conversation with Mitch Green on performance anxiety. Bye-bye. So I want to start by diving into the second chapter of your book. The title is Why Positive Thinking Doesn't Work. It's a very interesting title. We have heard so many messages about think positive, 
look at yourself in the mirror and tell yourself that you are this and that? Well, what's the story behind this chapter? And how did you come up with a title? Well, the story goes back to graduate school where I was exposed to these sort of more mindful, acceptance-based approaches to working with clients. And really the whole book almost goes back to that time. I didn't know it when, I, you know, at the time that this was what my career was going to wind up looking like and I was going to write a book about it. But I was exposed to a number of different approaches like everyone in graduate school from CBT to other approaches. At that point, there wasn't an act. There wasn't an acceptance and commitment therapy. But there was a professor who I'm still very close with today named Dr. Jay Efren, who um, would run groups for shy individuals and and other groups on the campus of Temple University where I went to graduate school. And the approach was, instead of trying to be somebody you're not, instead of trying to convince yourself that you feel something that you don't really feel, can you understand more about how the mind works and how it sort of looks for trouble and tries to get you to you know think worse of yourself? And instead of fighting with yourself, can you sort of let that, can you let that be? And we would have a group of shy college students, you know, six weeks later uh, saying that it wasn't that they necessarily felt more positive about themselves. It's just that they weren't sort of fighting with themselves as much. They weren't trying to convince themselves that they were outgoing. It's that they had come to terms with themselves that they were shy, but they could also still offer something out there to the world. And so that stuck with me. And then my, with my work mm -hmm. with athletes that I do now, Patricia, if I try to tell somebody that they really feel confident when they're really feeling nervy and unsure, they're going to feel like I don't really get it. And uh, they've already tried by the time they come talk to me, the whole positive thinking approach. They've already tried to have, do affirmations. They've already tried to tell themselves they're, you know, a butt kicker, but, and that works for like five seconds. And then, and then they're back to feeling their sort of nervous, chattery self again. And so, so through a lot of years of practice and work with athletes and non-athletes, um, I come to see that positive thinking and confidence are sort of overrated at times. As I like to say, if you're feeling confident, I'm going to get out of your way. You know, if you're feeling authentically confident, you don't need Mitch Green or Patricia, you know, so, but the people who come see me have already tried that and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I am thinking that at times our mind as a wonderful content generating device or as a board of directors in our head will sometimes compare ourselves. If you're playing tennis, your mind may come up with a thought like, I'm not playing as well as Roger Federer. Or have you looked how Rafael Nadal hits the ball? What's wrong with me? And then perhaps people try to think, okay, I... I am good. I have been playing tennis 16 years. I am good at serving and blah, blah, blah. What would you encourage them to do if they start having comparison thoughts and their frame of reference are these big players or other people in their team that perhaps has better moves at times? Okay, well, that really is that gets to the heart and soul of my book about how to prepare one's mind for when they're about to compete. And I do like that saying, sort of preparation is separation, sort of the idea that that a talented player doesn't always win. The best athlete doesn't always come in first. Um, those who can prepare the mind for what will happen at some point, 
during that competition, if it's a legit sort of head-to-head competition, is that, as you say, the mind will look for trouble. The mind will start to pump out messages. I mean, doubts, second-guessing, and negative and or negative thinking. And what I want that athlete to do on the tennis court is instead of thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm having these thoughts again because we've prepared for this and we know how the mind works. It always shows up in these high stakes endeavors like a tennis competition. I want them to be able to sort of welcome it in. It's sort of a welcome, unwelcome guest that's knocking on the door. And instead of trying to, like, keep the door shut, I want them to say more like, I knew you'd be here. Of course you're here. Mm-hmm. And I go through a lot of preparation with my athletes about getting them to make room for chatter versus thinking I can't think certain thoughts because if I'm do if I think certain thoughts, that means I'm not I'm doomed. Mm-hmm. And, and and I was just on with an athlete this morning who said, you know, the biggest lesson I've taken from you, Dr. Green, is that I can have those chattery thoughts and still play well. And for a lot of athletes, those chattery thoughts come and they've decided. And the chatters decided that it's game over. Mm-hmm. And so what it really comes down to, Patricia, a lot is not necessarily what those thoughts say, but what those thoughts do is that they ruin the athlete's focus. So an athlete goes from thinking about their game plan, for example, about coming to the net or you know having a big kick serve, and all of a sudden they forget everything that they're focused on and supposed to be focused on. And so the chatter does all kinds of damage. But the good news is if you prepare for it and you know how to manage it Hmm. and you instead of thinking it can't come because it's a sign of something wrong, you say when it comes, here's how I'm going to respond. Athletes start to feel like they can play more like themselves again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it makes a huge difference when we acknowledge that to be human is to have worries, anxious thoughts, and disaster forecaster thoughts. We don't have to be surprised when these thoughts pop up. We should expect yeah. them, right? We it's like a neighbor them. is going to knock on my door, right? Of course, they're yes. going to show up. That leads I- me to another question, if it's okay. Um, sure. Let's say that I am playing tennis and I am afraid of not hitting the ball right. And I had my session with Dr. Green and I'm trying to make room for all the noise that is coming up in my head. But I tell you, Dr. Green, those thoughts don't go away. I am telling myself, hey, you are here. I knew you were going to come, but they keep coming back. What would you encourage them to do? Yeah. Well, the most important thing in that question that I where I would start is to remind them that their job, the athlete's job, is to not make them go away. I think that's part of what makes this approach. It's very counterintuitive and it's what takes a little bit of time for athletes to fully digest that the goal is not to make them go away. Dr. Green, I can't seem to get rid of them immediately when I hear that from an athlete, I know, okay. We need some more time to review the concept here of making room for them and allowing them to be there. So if in the question, like with your question, I'm hearing that they're actually sort of still trying in their own way to eliminate it because they think they have to, then I'm doubling down and going back over the concept and the teaching and the theory and the practice again to let them know that chatter's coming more coming for the ride Mm -hmm. and joining in on it 
And if I've done enough work with them beforehand and they come to appreciate that chatter isn't a sign that there's something wrong, that will help them, right? I get them to see if anything, in some ways, it's a sign of, that something's right. In mm-hmm. other words, I might joke with them, like, if I told you your tennis match against that opponent was now, I rescheduled it, you're now playing against a six-year-old, but don't worry, you're still going to get credit for having won that match in the tournament. I'm going to kind of work my magic, you know, it's some sort of made up silly example. You're still going to get credit and you could then move on to the next round. Now, here's the good news. You won't have any chatter. Mm-hmm. Isn't that great? And of course they say, no, like who wants to play? Like it's stupid to play a six-year-old. <laughs> like I'm 25 years old. This is super boring. It doesn't mean anything. And I go, right. I go, there's no challenge, right? There's, there's no challenge to it. But anytime there's a challenge, there's going to be chatter. And I want them to appreciate that the chatter isn't, again, this sign that there's something wrong. That helps them not feel like they have to just get rid of it. It's uncomfortable. But as the cliche goes, I'm helping them get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's right. a different relationship with the mind, right? Um, if I can ask a little bit, when people have comparison thoughts or when they have self-criticizing thoughts or they are quickly anticipating bad things happening, they do a struggle shifting the focus of attention from what's happening in their head to what is, right? I talk about how to switch the attention from what if to what is. And what is in front of you is the tennis racket and a ball that you have to hit, an opponent that you are playing with. How do you coach them to do this attentional switch as a choice? And how do you teach them to make room to all this yeah. mind chat that is showing up? Yeah. Some of that work is done off the court. Some of that's done in their daily lives when they're chattering, because of course, chatter doesn't just show up on the court. So sometimes a good place to practice that is to sort of have some physical cue that they return to or mental cue or mantra or device that somehow helps them reset and kind of ground themselves. Hmm. So I might first talk with that tennis player about off the court, where does chatter tend to appear? What do you tend to do when it shows up? Can we come up with some plan off the court where there's a little less like pressure to get it right, where you can kind of rehearse how you're going to respond to the chatter. And then on the court, we often will work on having certain like physical cues or resets that they can use. The the, the squeaking of the sneakers under the, on the court, um, the playing with the strings to reset. That's a big, your question is a good one because it's a big part of what athletes need. There's the thought, there's the how you manage the chatter. Then there's kind of the reset and then there's kind of the refocus piece. Mm -hmm. And they need something to go to when things start to go south and start to go sideways on them. And having a some sort of reset button is where we'll sort of focus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, I started riding my bike during COVID and I love it to pieces. And I will be going to the mountain, the um, Mount Diablo Mountain here in the Bay Area. And I will be riding my bike and I'm getting there into the mountain and I love it. I'm sweating and my breathing gets heavy and I feel the tension on my legs. And then when I look up, I see these bikers, they're like, la, 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 
<laughs> and my mom yes. said, oh my gosh, I'm never going to ride like them. Oh, they are riding their bikes next to me and they look so cool, like cucumber, yeah. fresh and relaxed. Right. And many times we look at them and say, I don't think I can make it. Oh my gosh, that looks so hard. If you're next to me, you're riding next to me and you're coaching me or manage that mind chatter, what would you encourage me to try? I would be, I would, you know, in some ways trying to get you to do a few things. I would get you to be first appreciating that what you've already accomplished, that you're already, let's say, halfway up the mountain mm -hmm. and that. Well, let's um, say 10% up in the mountain. 10% <laughs> up the mountain. I would want you to set some, I, I would want you to figure out what goals you want to set for yourself. In other words, I would try to get you back to, you know, focusing on things that are outside of your control, like those people who are zooming up the mountain is mm. going to sort of ruin the joy and the whole point of why you're even out there on a bike in the first place. So I would certainly want to have you set some goals and want to remind you of why you're even on a freaking bike on a freaking mountain in the first place. And you would say, well, you know, I'm looking to, to get out of the confines of my house. It's COVID and I'm feel stuck and I'm looking to breathe the fresh air and I'm going, well, how much time are you spending actually looking at the nature around you and noticing the, the beautiful trees here and the wind kind of blowing off your face? And you'd say, not much. And I'd say, okay, well, let's, for the next mile, let's just try to sort of notice as much as we can about the sounds, the feeling, the sweat mm -hmm. of this experience, which is partly why you're doing it. You're doing it to kind of have this experience. So I would obviously try to take the focus off those people in front and get you to reconnect with why, and then maybe set some goals for you and me over that next mile, let's say. Yeah, yeah. I, I love your response because how powerful it is to check again. Why am I doing this? Yeah. Yeah. And those two riders that are way ahead of you are nowhere on your why and your to-do list. In other words, so, so there's more of a That's distraction. Right. And that's with athletes. We spend a lot of time trying to talk about where the distractions will come from. You know, is it going to come from your competitors? Is it going to come from your parents? If I'm working with a youth athlete, is it going to come from your coach? Is it going to come from other players, even on your own team? You know, where is the joy going to get sort of stolen from you? Where is that? Why going to get, who's going to help you, you know, take that away from you? You know, who's the energy vampire, as we say, you know, who's that's going to sort of suck the energy out from you, you know, who are the people who are going to enhance your experience and get you connected to that? Why, how, you know, how can we make sure around that competition, we're spending more time with them than those who are going to, and we do this with our Olympians, not just mm -hmm. with our, you know, we, you know, one of the big conversations with Olympic athletes and I work with many of them is this same conversation, especially when you go to a big competition, like an Olympic games, there are a lot of people who want your time, who want your attention. And we make sure we leave no stone unturned for anything that might sort of distract them from why they're there and what their goals are. Mm -hmm. Another common struggle, especially when people are high achievers, go-getters and doers, is when they start doubting their capacities, when they start doubting their abilities. If I tell you, I can't, I can't, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can ride a bike to the top of the mountain. What would you encourage me to do with that particular mind chatter? 
if you were on the mountain and you don't feel like you could get to the top of the yes, mountain? Yes, if I start having thoughts, doubting my abilities to keep driving the bike. Yeah. Even though I have trained, even though I have go up the mountain many times, but then I start having this thought, I cannot do this. I cannot ride the yeah. bike. Yeah. Well, of course, the whole my whole mission and message would be to have that conversation with them about mind chatter in general going, of course, you're having the thought, I can't do this. I've done... I've done a dozen marathons. I've done Ironman myself and I'm Mr. Sports Psychologist. And I have those thoughts as well that I don't know if I can make it to the end. I don't know if I can keep my pace. Uh, I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know if the pain's going to hurt too bad. So, so part of my job is to make sure they're prepared knowing that just because you're having those doubting thoughts isn't a sign that you can't do it. Then I would do the sort of a, if it's an endurance race, a bike race or something like that, we want to chunk it. We want to do some chunking. So we want to say from here to there for the next half mile, again, bring yourself back to some of the focus on the things that you can control. You want to work on pedaling your bike. So you're, you know, the old expression of wiping dirt off the bottom of your cleats. So, you know, you want to make sure your form is good. Where are your shoulders? You know, you know, what kind of tension are you carrying? So I would say, we want to sort of focus more on facts than feelings. Mm. The feelings are saying, I don't know if I can do this, but the facts are that if I sort of stay in proper form and I kind of get my breath right, that I'm always looking for people to be, as you know, uh, curious. Mm. And I'm also looking for people, as you know, seeing an attempt at a particular sport as more an act of courage than confidence. In other words, you don't need confidence to get to the mountaintop if you ask the people who climb Mount Everest, if they're confident that they're going to make it, they would double over in laughter, thinking confident, like, <laughs> I, I, well, I don't know, anything could happen here. I could be blown off the mountain in three hours from now if the winds change. But we would agree that, and they are full of doubts, but they're incredibly courageous, obviously. And they're figuring out, all right, how do I get to base camp one and then base camp two? And what's important? What's my definition of success to get to base camp one? How do I, what's the checklist I need to hit? So we would talk about courage over confidence. We would talk about curiosity. We would chunk it into small goals. And we would know that just because we're having those doubts um, uh, doesn't mean we're not capable of reaching the summit. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.zone. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon!